<laughs> you know, Fingerling's a weird name, right? Um, it is a weird it's name. Not, it's not quite as filthy as Harry Hole, but it's definitely, you know, <laughs> in in that ballpark, right? If, if we're having the uh, Sam Jackson, uh, John Travolta ballpark conversation from the beginning of Pulp Fiction, um, it's, yeah. Is is foot rub close to holiest of holies close? You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it, it's strange. I mean, I know the 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 phrase or the word or whatever is used for like measuring the length of like a fish or a cucumber. Isn't or, it a type of potato? Uh, is oh, I mean, it might be. A I mean, that's all potato? I know. describing a size. Yeah. Yeah, all I know is the fingerling potato for sure. That's all I got. But yeah, I think I've heard it applied to various sort of uh, agricultural products, um, both. Um, from the animal kingdom and plant kingdoms, but that's really all I know. Right, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird phrase, but I will say this. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss films you'll never discuss in film today's course. This week's film is Joel Schumacher's The Number 23, starring Jim Carrey. And uh, I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And I, of course, am uh, still the sweet young baby boy, Dalton Stewart, but now that October has ended and we've entered fall in earnest, uh, I have put aside childish things, and I'm, I'm committed to uh, doing an NPR bit uh, for Dustin's Marathon. Um, Dustin, why don't you tell the listener um, a little bit more about the marathon we're doing for November? So the marathon is um, Dalton turned 30 last month, and I turned 40 this month. And so uh, we are both sort of picking marathons. I've got a few rails in uh, which I have to pick some things. Uh, the first pick was not even my own. It's just a movie I make reference to oftentimes because of its sort of strange weirdness. Uh, and that is kind of up my alley, and that is the number 23 that we're discussing today. And then I get to pick a good old-fashioned good trash movie. Uh, I then get to pick a kung fu movie. And then I get to pick, uh, I think just an artsy-fartsy movie. Yep. Yeah, and that's just the four I get to pick, right? Um, yeah. So. That's enough, old man. Uh, that's all That's all I need. I mean, that's, that's more than enough. I mean, these birthdays don't even matter anymore. I'm over the hill. I'm dead already. So Well, um, and of course, Dustin, yes, now that you've entered the accepting that you're basically already dead phase of your life, there's no telling when you're going to enter a late-stage crisis of, uh, existential, of an existential nature. And so we really – I need to ballast you out uh, for a change, and that's why you're, you're going to have this new, smoother, mellower, jazzier me. Uh, and, of course, yes, five weeks of Dustin is far, far too much. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I give it 20 minutes. <laughs> Are you talking Dalton's about voice. Dalton's voice. Yep. Yeah. Oh, no, Arthur. Look, this is this – is any time Arthur and I had to interview somebody I was intimidated by uh, back on People's History – uh, this is the mode that I went into, so I trust myself. Which was almost everybody. So, fun fact. Dalton's oh, easy well, to intimidate. True. That does shake I out. I am a very anxious little boy uh, at heart. So, uh, coming back to the number 23 and uh, this show about that, I want to let you know, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show. And that does mean that we're going to spoil the movie. And this particular film is pretty plotty. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, we're going to do that, but we'll avoid those spoilers the first part of the show. We'll do quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, even though it's not a review show. We'll do that very quickly. Then we'll move into a little thought exercise we call expanding the syllabus. I'll explain more about that later. And then finally we get down to business, and that's when uh, analysis happens and all bets are off. So you have been warned. So, without further ado, Arthur, can we hear a synopsis of the number 23, please? Yeah, sure, why not? This was written by Anonymous. How fitting. 
Walter Sparrow becomes obsessed with a novel that he believes was written about him, as more and more similarities between himself and his literary alter egos seem to arise. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, that's it. That 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 covers the whole of the thing. Yes, a classic sad white boy problem. So, uh, Dalton, from your quarantine corner, um, let's go ahead and hear your quick review of uh, the number 23. Well, Dustin, thank you for letting me go first. Uh, I, I am very excited to talk about this. Uh, I haven't seen this movie since uh, I was a wee teenager um, when it first came out. I say wee, like, I don't know, it's like 16, 17 maybe at most. Um, what year did this come out? 06? Sounds right. Seven. Oh, seven. So, yeah, I was probably about 17. Um, and I went and saw this with friend of the show, uh, Good Trash Fam alum, Kirsten Thurkelson, and her mom. Uh, it was a very fun time at the cinemas, and that was the very last time I watched it. And, boy, is it a good – that's good. It, uh, you know, sometimes you watch a movie from your teen years, and it validates your taste uh, as a film lover uh, and, a, you know, an amateur film critic. Uh, and other times you watch a film from your childhood and you go, oh, God. What a dumb, dumb, dumb dog shit person I was. What a fool. Uh, what a rube. I'd been, I'd been hoodwinked by the man like so many before me. Uh, and I certainly hope Dustin likes this movie, ironically, uh, because if he doesn't, uh, Pops is going to get a spanking on air for the first time since we talked about the gray. Um, and uh, I, I would hate to do that on his birthday. But you know what? Some people like spankings on their birthday. I know I do. Um, that's really all I have to say at this point in review. Um, I, I guess other than that, I, I think Jim Carrey's giving a good performance here. You know, um, it's a really uninteresting character, unfortunately. You know, it, it doesn't give him something to sink his teeth into like he gets with Truman Show, which we discussed, uh, you know, uh, in our um, Have We Never Covered Marathon earlier this year. But, you know, it's not the best Schumacher. It's one of the least aesthetically interesting Schumacher films ever made. Uh, I think the flashes we get of Jim Carrey reading the novel, the number 23 within the film, uh, I think those aesthetic choices are really cool and dramatic and fun, kind of a sleaze noir, vape noir thing. Um, but they, you know, they don't really commit to it too hard, and those sequences are over about you know two-thirds of the way through the movie. So... I don't know. Your mileage may vary, viewer, but uh, you know, just because there's a Democrat in the White House now doesn't mean I'm going to take my foot off the gas, if you know what I mean, comrades. So uh, when uh, there's a bunch of propaganda in my face, I can't pretend it's good when it's this fucking bad. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Sir, what do you say, Arthur? Um, do you want me to just say Dalton's wrong? Is that where we should stop? I mean, if that's what you want to go ahead and do, yeah. <laughs> it's easier to pick on him when he's not here. I know, right? It's like he's not a real person. Maybe he's a figment of my imagination. Ooh, now I like this headcanon. Mr. Topsy Secrets over here. He's your, uh, yeah, he's your have, uh, suppressed been, personality. You're my I Tyler Durden? Top secrets. Yeah, I'm your Tyler Durden, Arthur. I've never been real. <laughs> Explains the soap in my bathroom. Um, I think <laughs> that the number 23 is a highly convoluted mess of a film. Uh, that's still pretty easy to watch. I, I like... Uh, a lot of things it's attempting to do. I don't think it succeeds at many of them. But I will take a movie like this that's trying and failing more often than not than some stuff that comes out. Uh, like Dalton said, I think Jim Carrey's doing I think Carrey and... Oh, oh my God, what's her name? I can't think of her name. I always mess it up. Um, don't, Virginia Madsen. There it is. Yeah, there's too many yeah, similar-looking white women. Alum. Um, yeah, Candyman alum. 
I think that uh, I think they're both given, even Logan Lerman for this little bit that he's in here. I think all of them are putting in the type of performance that this film demands, this highly melodramatic, pulpy performance. I think they're all delivering that, and I think they all do very good in that. I think that this film has a very tongue-in-cheek attitude towards the pulp stuff that it's delivering. Uh, the whole fact that he has a barbed wire tattoo as Fingerling with plays the saxophone while looking forlornly over the city... I think he tells you just about everything you need to know about this film. Uh, and, and I appreciate those moments. I, I do think they're pretty fun. Uh, I, I laugh several times uh, by how outrageous it is. Um, to Dalton's point, I don't know that it is. You know, it's not his most visually pleasing film. And I, I'm actually not a huge fan of the number 23 moments because they're that mid-2000s in the wake of Sin City, in the wake of 300, heavily oh, washed see, out. Sky Captain Tomorrow type uh, exposition. And it just feels a bridge too far in some of the shots. Like they're just a little too overdone. And, and so I think if they could have reined it in just a hair, it was a little too washed out. Uh, and so it, it feels very much uh, a product of that time. Um, but I, I, the mystery within the mystery is kind of fun. Uh, Jim Carrey's, you know, a lot of fun. I, I think he puts in a really good performance, as I mentioned, uh, not just emotionally but also physically he he does some really interesting stuff physically uh throughout the way he carries himself as a dog catcher um that kind of physicality is so important to carry's performances it's almost forgettable because it's so subtle the way he does it uh, and obviously you know that's kind of the big hallmark of his career early on as a comedian is this kind of mr rubber type uh thing he was able to do to contort his face or contort his body and he really is able to, I think, leverage that a lot of times into a stronger uh, physical performance that adds to the character, to the movie that he's in. And so that was something I kind of picked up on watching this. And I really appreciate about his work in general. Um, I mean, it, it is what it is. I, I think the film really falls apart for me in the end. Uh, I hate, I hate, hate, hate uh, that overly long exposition uh, after we find out the reveal. And God, it's so bad. They have to walk us through every moment and how it's connected to the book. And I think that just kills any type of momentum the film might have had up to that point. Why um, would you ever want to rewatch it when they do that? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I mean if they could have just tightened that. I mean, it, it pretty much spells itself out, you, you know, if you're paying attention. And it's just like The Prestige, I had the same problem with The Prestige. And I think it's the same thing here. Uh, just that heavy drop of, of exposition to like, see, this is what it was. And yeah, I know. I've pieced it together already. Um, I, I think it's a fun, fun reveal. I, I, I do appreciate that. And, and I like kind of how it lays itself out up to that point. Um, I think it's just a wild, chaotic, loony mess of a film. But I think it does have a lot of passion and a lot of tongue in cheek. And I think when those moments work, they work. Uh, but I think it does just miss a lot. So I, I appreciate watching it. I'd watch it again. You know, I'd watch it again Arthur. today. Arthur, I'm glad you liked the top secrets, uh, and I refuse to say it as top secrets for the record. That's his, just say that is his secrets. Christian name, and that's what you're going to say. All right. You know what, Arthur? You're right, and I will respect that. Um, I, the top secrets sequences of the film are, are really great. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm glad you like them. I can see what, what you're saying about them being too much a product of their time, because if they were really great um, – Jim Carrey would have belted out Baker Street uh, at one point with that saxophone and really tied the fucking room together. You yeah. know what I mean? 
Um, that's what it was missing, was a really goofy sax drop. Uh, I do love the She Wants Revenge needle drop, like, right when we introduce those sequences. Yeah. I And I feel like that, again, product of its time, but does so so effectively set the tone for those sequences. Dustin, um, this is a film you have a great deal of affection for. Please explain why. Have you gone mad in your old age? Um, well, I guess I've gone mad at my young age, because I saw this within a couple years of it coming out as well, immediately on video. Uh, when I finally got around to catching it, and uh, I did have access to the unrated version on uh, that video, and that's what I rewatched uh, when I uh, prepared for this show. But no, I, I think the movie is—I mean, the, the calling it a mess that is satisfying is probably the best way to describe it. I mean, it absolutely is a mess. There are things in there that are totally sort of strained and don't quite work, and I do think Jim per- Carrey's performance is good. I think the character is underwritten. In a way that's a little flat, uh, especially uh, Jim Carrey's, uh, you know, Sparrow character, uh, the Fingerling character, perfect. I mean, just you know, you need it that flat, and I think that's, and I think his performance there is is solid. But when he is, you know, himself, the dog catcher, him, uh, you know, in his scenes with Virginia Madsen, yeah, he is a little flat. Uh, but also, that flatness is sort of, in some ways, explained by some of the circumstances surrounding the, the script. But that being said, it's not as entertaining. And so I, I do find that to be a little bit weak. Uh, I, I, I think the real world, for the most part, is pretty dull. It's pretty standard. I mean, it is a little bit washed out. But I much prefer real-world madness stuff, uh, where uh, he is uh, losing more and more of his grip on reality, and obsession is taking him over a bit more. And I love all of the fingerling-recreated visuals. Uh, I I think visually that's just fascinating to me, and it's just it, it's a lot of fun. It's very splashy, um, even though it's it's you know not really taking a shine so much to it. It's not a sparkly Baz Luhrmann kind of thing, but I just, I just like how slick it is. Uh, oh, totally. It. Again, yeah, we gotta come, we gotta agree on terms on this. Are the by finger link sequences, Dustin? Do you mean the the novel within the novel, the novel within the film sequences? Yes. Okay, so the, I think that's probably the best way to call them. The Widow Dawkins kind of and them. meeting the suicide blonde and those yeah, sections. The number the 23 sequences. sequences. Yeah, yeah. But, and again, we've all called them something different, though. <laughs> yeah, I think fingerling sequences is what I'm going to stick with because that's that's helpful for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think we're all in agreement. They're, the, they're like the strongest point of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even, uh, even in their wackiness because they're the moments where the film like most embraces camp and has the most fun. Yeah. And uh, that that stuff I enjoy. Uh, you already mentioned this. She wants revenge needle drop. There's also a nine horses uh, drop at the song "Banality of Evil" over the credits, which is a great song that nobody ever heard, and uh, and really kind of a great little uh, group from David Sylvian, formerly of the band Asia, the '80s uh, synth pop band uh, from back in the day. And I, I just really, really thoroughly enjoy that. And uh, Virginia Madsen does a good job. I think she's solid in all that she does. And uh, I find it to be entertaining. Uh, again, it, that super, super explanatory bit at the end, I, I understand the annoyance with it. I think it's fine for uh, an, a filmmaker who is assuming people are not going to rewatch the movie. And therefore, you want to make those connections. Um, I, I would not make the same decision, and I don't think the same decisions. But I don't find it quite as um, uh, mortal as you guys do, as far as errors go. It's more of a venial sin than a mortal sin. Is what I'm. You know, we're getting very Catholic now in our analysis yeah. here, but uh, it, it works for me. Uh, in that sense, but I, I, I get the choice, and I think that there's got to be some sort of rationale along those lines for the ones who aren't going to say, oh, so what exactly happened? 
uh, and just go, I don't know, I didn't get it. I wasn't paying attention. I was, you know, too busy snagging my girlfriend or whatever I was doing uh, when the movie was on. And so I think it's for that kind of uh, audience purpose. So, but that being said, uh, I understand it being divisive. I understand it being polarizing. It's got like an 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, it's pretty well hated. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's unfair because I do think it is trying some things, as Arthur was saying, and uh, wrestling with some questions that are interesting. And, uh, yeah, so that I find to be fun for the most part. And uh, so, anyway, I enjoy it, and I am not unhappy that Arthur gave it to me as a birthday present. Remember, he picked this, not me, uh, for this one. I might not have selected this particular film, but I'm glad he did, and it was a good present. So thanks, buddy. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts, um, which are mixed. Uh, let's move on, then, and uh, let's uh, have our little thought exercise we call Expanding the Syllabus, in which we imagine a class in which we are using this film as one of the base texts. With what other texts shall you mix this film? With what other films would you uh, mix this film? What would the class be and what would be the topics of the module and or class? I go to you first, Arthur. What are you going to do with the number 23? I think this would just be a section maybe in, I don't know, what kind of class. It'd be a film class of some sort. Um, maybe even screenwriting thing. I don't know. We'd figure it out. But I would talk about stories within stories, I think. Mm, yeah. I think that's a good starting point for this um, and a good you know place to lay it down. I, I think that for this, I, I really want to focus on the idea of the story within a story that I might actually be true. And I think that's kind of a fun dynamic to play with narratively, uh, especially considering how this one ends and where it goes. Uh, so with this, I think I would actually start with, I think, a pretty fitting film, and that is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Nice. I think that would be a fun one. And you could talk about style as well. You can talk about the expressionism and how that influences noir and how that shows up here. Uh, so there's some of that kind of feeding through the generations type thing. You can talk about stylistically, as well as just the kind of storytelling and, and you know, the, the story behind Dr. Caligari and what led to that, you know, playing out the way it does, and then kind of comparing that with a panned uh, Joel Schumacher film. Uh, from there, I think I would talk about uh, Tim Burton's Big Fish. Uh, nice. I think, again, you could talk about some masculinity stuff, which also shows up in number 23. I think you could talk about fatherhood um, and then the power of storytelling as well. And so thematically, I think they could tie in uh, in several ways, even though they're completely different tonally and completely different textually. I, I think there are some fun ties to make. Uh, I think lastly, um, I would go with uh, Ang Lee's The Life of Pi and Richard Parker and tell, talk about that story. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how much spirituality there is in Schumacher's film, uh, but I think there's a, a lot to say about allegory and uh, storytelling and how we use stories to cope and deal. And I think that connection uh, really lines up with the life of Pi. And so I think I would do something uh, in, in that regard in, in a film course of some variety. Oh, I love that, and I want to talk more about that when we get down to analysis. That is that is fascinating, Arthur. Very, very well played. Well, what do you say, Dalton? How would you expand the syllabus with the number twenty-three? Um, well, I, I, I'm I know I've been the harshest critic of this film so far, and I do agree with everything everyone said. And Arthur, I, I have a good syllabus, man. Um, I actually, uh, as you were talking, it was helping me kind of clarify a few things on my syllabus. So I really appreciate. Uh, um, what you got going on there i'm excited about this one because uh i i get to talk about politics on the show which you know i always love to do but um now that we don't have a uh a spray tan uh, bad excuse for a scotsman fascist in the white house 
I thought he was talking about Highlander again. (laughs) Uh, And boys, let me tell you, I can't wait for us to talk about Highlander here in a couple of minutes. Spoilers, Uh, I'm going to announce in a few minutes we're going to do Highlander next. (laughs) Well, and there there you have it. The listeners are just going to get that one for free because uh, I am so excited to talk about Highlander. If they're even paying Um, attention. Well, I think they are. Um, It's a... it's important to still talk about politics just because things might seem like they might be getting better because uh, I don't know if you follow local news fellas or anybody listening. Uh, there's some un- uncomfortable demonstrations uh, at our state capitol here locally. Uh, so it's important to stay hyper vigilant. So this is going to be a poli sci 101 class. It's called film, mental health and revolution. Um, I'm throwing in mental health again because of the number 23, um, but also because of the idea of thought viruses, right? Uh, Because that is Mm. sort of what we have going on in the film, is the idea of this thought virus that Jim Carrey gave to himself, uh, the character of Jim Carrey. I'm just going to go ahead and refer to the the characters by their actor name because we have so many dual roles. Uh, And I I did forget to mention this, but as you guys were talking about Virginia um, Madsen, or not Virginia Madsen, oh yeah, Virginia Madsen earlier, uh, I was thinking, um, how great her and Danny Houston and, and Jim Carrey, like all the dual roles in here are really good. They're really well different, differentiated, but the through lines between them are, are also like well-established. So, you know, good character work. I, I like what I, what, what we get, what we see, but um, I also want to connect uh, mental health to revolution because of the idea uh, I heard recently, and it's, it's been well-documented that apparently uh, people who suffer from severe mental health issues, particularly uh, anxiety and depression, uh, thrive in war zones uh, just because all the chaos in their brain, which is usually an overactive uh, fight-or-flight response, um, you know, it has somewhere to direct all that energy. Uh, so something to think about, uh, boys and girls and friends beyond the binary, as we move forward into the next four years. Uh, so first up, we're going to talk about She Dies Tomorrow. Uh, a lot of stuff uh, on the syllabus has come up on the show before, but I just these are really good examples, I think, to play with this week. Uh, she Dies Tomorrow was a 2020 release, uh, one of my favorites so far of the few 2020 releases I've seen, uh, but very much a film about hyperfixation uh, and also a little bit of It Follows going on in there, so you should definitely check that one out. Uh, next up, Inception, as Arthur said, masculinity is a huge, huge part of this film. Uh, I would say misogyny is an even bigger part of this film, um, but um, I, I think... Um, Inception gives us a lot to work with in terms of the idea of the gifts and curses we give each other within families and within interpersonal relationships. Um, Next up, we're going to be looking at V for Vendetta, a compare and contrast study uh, in the graphic novel and the film adaptation uh, directed by, uh, I don't remember, the dude who did Ninja Assassin, but maybe Loki the Wachowskis. Depends who you ask. Um, but I think though that, that graphic novel and that film are very good. I think the film is a little underrated. Um, it's rightly criticized, but I think the camp elements in that film that the comic book doesn't have are, are, are really well uh, – fit the film very well, despite the film's kind of political analysis being a little uh, – 
less interesting than the graphic novels, I'll say, to, to keep it a generous read. Uh, next, uh, a, a video game from 2019 that I love very, very much. I know I've referenced on the show quite a bit the last year or so, uh, Disco Elysium. Uh, I won't get too much into the game mechanics now because they are a little complicated to get into. Suffice to say, it is a detective role-playing game where you enter a half sci-fi, well, let's say 60% sci-fi, 40% um, diesel punk um, world, um, and you are a detective trying to solve a union-related murder um, uh, in the middle of an ongoing strike. A mercenary has been lynched um, during a labor dispute, and um, you, unfortunately, uh, have some very big substance abuse issues and have uh, given yourself permanent amnesia due to uh, binging during the case and have to start from scratch and have been assigned a new partner. And it's just a really interesting video game about conversation, um, about um, the attributes of ourselves that we are proud of and the ones in which we are ashamed of um, and the ways in which we learn new ideas and internalize new ideas. Really, really, really great video game. Um, if you, um, It's on Steam. Uh, it's also on Nintendo Switch. Um, it's uh, very easy to run graphically, so I strongly recommend you check this out. But I think it gets into politics and police work in a way that are truly and deeply fascinating and uh, pair with the number 23. Oh, and mental health and uh, substance abuse issues and violence and all, all of these things that the number 23 works with. Uh, Disco Elysium is really fired up on that stuff, and it's as much a novel as it is a video game. So really think you would like that listener. Uh, and finally, uh, Hulu's Monsterland, uh, which they've been airing this year uh, during Halloween, or I guess they dropped it all at once. It is probably the best anthology series of the last two years or so. Now, to be fair, I haven't got to watch very much of the, the CBS uh, all-access reboot of The Twilight Zone. Um, I, I liked what I saw, but, you know, I wasn't compelled to watch the whole thing, and I feel like Black Mirror's been a little bit off for a while now. Everybody knows it. Um, but Monsterland really is ticking all my boxes, dudes. It, oof, it is some good stuff. Each episode really does explore something interesting, and much like um, Archdiocese, our Monster of the Week campaign that we play over on the Patreon corner um, uh, of the web, they find a fun way to, in, in each installment of the series, uh, pick a city in America to kind of structure uh, their themes around. And uh, I just find that really interesting, uh, and they do deal with these ideas of thought viruses uh, and, of course, with mental health and with policing and with power and abuse. Um, they deal with all of the things that the number 23 deals with in little, you know, 45-minute to an hour long, depending on the episode, uh, spooky tales. Um, they're just, it's just a damn good show, one of the, the, the best Hulu originals I've seen since probably – the cancel before it's time high fidelity so that's the syllabus once again that is film mental health and revolution poli sci 101 uh, i hope you enjoy the class there into the lesson dustin sells what are you going to teach the fine people at home about today well first of all i'm just going to say very good i enjoyed what you just said there dalton and i'm surprised you didn't add pontypool to the uh, mix there um, oh son of a bitch i had pontypool written down thank you for bringing it back well, there's he... actually number one on the top of my list I forgot <laughs> to write additional notes about it so i forgot to mention it 
of course Pontypool, Dustin. Um, and if your class doesn't involve Pontypool, I'll, I'll, I, I know you love this film, so I'm going to go ahead and throw to you and let you talk about Pontypool. Please. Well, I, I'm not using Pontypool in my syllabus um, at all, but Pontypool is the, – the virus is what causes zombies, and it is sort of a word, thought, uh, verbal, well, and do you know, langu- well, linguistic and virus. There it is. And Dustin, I think it is very important to point out that the virus is the English language, and that, more than anything, is the most important lesson Pontypool has to teach. Yes, I agree. Well, it's Canadian English, so it doesn't count. <laughs> it's still infected. <laughs> but you, well, know, you speak counts. French, and you can speak in love, and then it's all going to be fine. There you go, exactly. Like American English, uh, which you know has to... Uh, rub shoulders with Spanish a lot, and you know Canadian English has to rub shoulders with French. I feel like you know we count third and fourth most. You know I'm going to go ahead and give it to the Aussies and the New Zealanders for first and second because they have the funnest accents. All right, well thank you very much again for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. My syllabus um, is going to be the Identity Noir. Uh, as a series. And so we'd go all the way back to 1947 for the first pick, uh, Dark Passage, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, uh, in which uh, Humphrey Bogart plays a character who's undergone plastic surgery to not be himself to prove his innocence of a crime and is involved with Lauren Bacall, who hates the person he used to be uh, and falls in love with the person that he is uh, over the course of the film. So it's an interesting sort of dynamic that goes on across that. It's not quite the same thing as identity blending and whatnot, but it is uh, a lot of first-person stuff and sort of getting away from oneself, the use of uh, the the visual iconography of first-person photography and also just mirrors as a major uh, source of uh, symbolism throughout the film I find to be pretty fascinating and a good way to sort of whet our appetites in the world of noir and then to begin to sort of entertain questions of identity. Then I would move on to 2001 and you know where I'm going. You know I'm going to go there. It's David Lynch. It's Mulholland Drive. Uh, and uh, yeah, baby. I mean, what 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 do you expect me to do here? Uh, which is the better version of the number twenty three? Obviously, um, it is a, is a superior film in every sort of way, and it is a question of identity and understanding and investigation, and also uh, reckoning with guilt. I find to be really kind of fascinating. You know, guilt is a uh, issue at Dark Passage, but it's the proving of innocence in Dark Passage. In this point, uh, in this part of the film, there is a, a subplot of an attempt to prove an innocent of someone else, but uh, it is mostly about running away from shame and guilt of one's own actions. And uh, so I find that to be interesting, and I think Mulholland Drive is very much about that same piece as well. And so Naomi Watts is one of her characters is doing the same kind of thing there. And then finally, of course, the number 23, which is, uh, again, very noir, very stylish, very you know slick in that kind of way, but also questions of identity, questions of shame, guilt, and uh, again, the, uh, that, that sort of a final epigram of the film, which is from the book of uh, Deuteronomy, or the numbers, excuse me, the, what is it, Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 32, 23, yeah. Uh, Be sure your sins will find you out. And uh, so that kind of makes an interesting epigram in terms of the topic of the film, mm-hmm. but um, the whole time Jim Carrey is wrestling with questions of identity uh, throughout, which I think is fascinating stuff. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got considerably longer. Um, so without any further ado, though, let's get into business. It's business. It's business time. That's right, dear well, listener. Dustin, go no, ahead. Go ahead, Dustin. No, 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 by all means. It's your birthday. That's right, dear listener. And that business is analysis. Go ahead, Dalton. <laughs> well, I'm glad you ended our 
expanding the syllabus section of the show. I am, of course, slowly but surely stealing business time from you because I um, have just so much more raw sexual energy than you. Call it the, the virility of youth. Uh, call it whatever you want. But I, I think I'm going to be hosting business time from now on. No, um, moving and, on. Uh, so uh, <laughs> we voted. We Sorry, the call cut out. Sorry, we can't hear you anymore. Bye. Bye, Dalton. <laughs> nice talking to you. I do want to start with – all right. Well, look, you know what? You you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Um, but I if you want to introduce a first theme, go right ahead, Dalton. Yeah, you have I, my I permission. Thank you for giving me your permission, Dad. This fucking guy thinks he's me. Anyway, uh, the epigraph at the end of the film, I agree, is very interesting. And it's we don't get a whole lot of theology uh, in this film or from this film. But I, I agree that it is a, it's a pretty interesting place to leave things on. Um, and I, you know, I, I thought we, we, I had some theology talk for, uh, for Highlander. And I know I, um, you know, normally don't do a whole lot of it on the show. I like to leave that to you, Dustin. But I've got thoughts uh, this week. Um, this might be the more interesting one to bring it up during because I don't have a whole lot for uh, business time this for this movie, if I'm being honest. Um, do you have any thoughts, theologically speaking, or you, Arthur? Um, again, in, any time a film, especially a Hollywood film, invokes um, you know, uh, it, the Christian gospel um, or even you know, earlier uh, – well, or, of course, uh, the original Jewish texts, uh, you know, I want to examine that. I want to be very interested in the why and the what's. Uh, so do we do we have any thoughts on this? Well, I think there is, um, you know, narratively speaking in this film that I think is a common thread in a lot of Hollywood cinema, and that is simply that um, balance uh, will be restored. Justice will in some way eventually be served. Yeah. Uh, we definitely have uh, movies, and I mean this is 2007, so it's not like it would be a new thing for the bad guy to get away with it. But to discover that oneself is the bad guy, uh, which is the big spoiler. We find out by the end of the movie that uh, Jim Carrey's character had murdered his girlfriend and then attempted suicide and had suffered from amnesia and therefore um, uh, had written this text that he ends up finding by accident. It's a long... I'm not going to explain the whole plot. Yeah, the uh, third act does that for you. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to do that. But anyway, he comes to understand that he did this thing and uh, his sins have indeed found them out. And I, I will say, you know, there's there's a there's a sense in which we're only as sick as our secrets, and that if we hold those things in, that they will make us very very sick. This is not yeah. quite the same thing as holding it in, but it is kind of an attempt to do that. Although the intentionality of Jim character Jim Carrey's character of pulling that in is not quite the there's not the same kind of culpability there. He got hit by a bus. I mean, for car or whatever it is, fell out of window. What did he do? Fall out of window. Fell out of a window. He, uh, he, he tries to kill well, himself with a bus a later. Attempt, yeah. The, 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 it was an S-word attempt, as, as we often say. Yeah, so, you know, that there, there's a way in which that culpability isn't quite there, although suicide is sort of a way of trying to escape that. And this idea that, you know, if you live with what you've done without letting that out in the light, all it does is fester and make one sick. And I think that is sort of the ancient principle and the ancient wisdom there. And that uh, it, it's worse, that uh, judgment retribution oftentimes is worse if one tries to hide what one has done. Or, um, so there's that side of it, there's a sort of a therapeutic side, I think, theologically speaking, and, and all the great um, sort of theological traditions. And I think, furthermore, there is a uh, final... Um, 
uh, what's the word, vindication uh, of the innocent against the guilty um, that is sort of built eschatologically uh, within these kinds of films. And just saying that, you know, you'll get away with evil for only so long, but eventually, you know, your chickens come home to roost. Eventually you reap your own world when you, you reap what you sow. Yeah. And so it, it, both of those things are kind of at work at the same time in which you're um, – seeing a person finding healing by giving up their secrets finally, but you're also seeing a, a, a narrative in which justice finally is served that the right person goes to prison, which is what exactly should be happening to uh, Carrie's yep. character. He murdered that girl. And so, yeah, he needs to go to jail. And so the movie sort of serves both those justice and therapeutic purposes at the same time, which is part of what I find interesting about the film. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, the, the thing about, uh, kind of you know uh to to do my best to segue from what you had to say to to my thoughts yeah i agree the the ways in which it deals with holding in uh hurt right whether this is hurt we sustain from others or hurt we give out to others uh is something i'm really interested in as well as again this this of course this final declaration that the truth will out uh, makes me think, and I know I've mentioned the show recently a lot, so I'll be brief uh, in this connection. Uh, but uh, the Good Lord Bird, uh, that Showtime miniseries uh, from Bloomhouse, uh, where Ethan Hawke is producing and, and playing as John Brown, uh, it's extremely good. Uh, it's it's just about to wrap up, and I, I've enjoyed it immensely. Um, but so much of that, of course, because it takes place in uh, uh, the 1860s in America, you know, during uh, or the 1850s, I should say. Um, uh, and during the heights of slavery, or rather the uh, the, the soon-to-happen climax of slavery, um, as well as you know, time of great uh, you know religious oppression in many ways, um, even from you know good-hearted abolitionists like John Brown, they were very much kind of uh, fanatical about sins of the flesh, um, which you know of course makes sense because there was so much sinning being done against uh, the human body uh, on this continent, uh, but. Uh, it is so interesting the way it deals with that stuff. Of course, the masculine repression and the holding things in and how that will always end up hurting the people you care about, right? It'll, it'll, that's the only thing it'll end up doing. Um, but also in the ways in which, um, you know, and, and again, this is a film in which Jim Carrey's character is incapable of dealing with. And of course, part of that's amnesia. But even before amnesia, it was a suicide attempt or, again, an S-word attempt. We, we, didn't, we, we didn't really remember to do content warnings. We've been breezing through this film. And uh, so we're just going to keep saying S-word attempt. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting character. And again, I, as we, we've all kind of said, Carrie does bring a lot to the role, even his kind of... Uh, very schlocky uh, portrayal of Detective Fingerling I thought was very fun. Um, but uh, speaking of detectives uh, and sins, I, I think having the character of uh, within the novel be a detective is, is interesting for a man who uh, is a dog catcher, right? Because it does kind of draw that parallel between troubled men uh, who are interested in law enforcement and that often commit crimes uh, because they uh, feel, feel inadequate about being unable to, unable to get into law enforcement. Of course, lots of other people commit crimes uh, for other reasons, but this is a common through line we see in a lot of serial offenders. Um, it, it is interesting then to think about the serial offenses of law enforcement officers, and uh, I would remind any law enforcement officers uh, brave enough to ever listen to this show that the eyes of the world are now upon them, and that goes double for you so-called militia leaders uh, and followers. 
because while uh, I, you know, I don't walk around like John Brown because I don't think that serves anybody any good these days uh, in this climate, I do follow uh, his theology and spirit. Uh, and, uh, you know, the truth will out, as we've said. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all I, that's all I have to say about the theology of the number 23, I think, if we want to move into the form or the craft of the film. Well, or... I think there's another theological, um, at least I think quasi-theological um, tie-in, and that was the things that Arthur was bringing out about in his analysis, talking about creating stories, the, the storied oh, shape of, yeah. of coping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and I, and I think that is uh, one of the sort of great values of uh, great religious traditions is they provide yeah. a story shape in which one can find the therapy, the healing, yeah. um, the liberation, you know, whatever it is that they catharsis. need. Catharsis. Yeah, yeah. Well, catharsis. Yeah, now that we're talking about catharsis and liberation, yeah, let's put a bow on it and make it nice and happy again. Yeah, and it does speak to the ways in which we get synthesis, right? Like you see, um, you know, uh, the American Christian tradition used to subjugate uh, brown and black bodies for centuries, and yet under that subjugation, you see the indigenous people of this country, and you see uh, black Americans uh, see within Christianity it, 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 its liberatory potential, right? Uh, and, and much like was done to uh, people all over Europe through the Middle Ages and Renaissance, um, they integrate these things into or, to their own cultural practices and find a way to uh, save themselves and and find liberation under oppression uh, because of the truth of the message, baby. You can't stop the signal, motherfucker. No matter how hard you try, um, and I, I do think that yeah, the, exactly. That is the beauty of when we find stories, uh, even if it's the number twenty three and it's wonky as heck. There's, uh, as Arthur said, such value in finding and creating stories and really being able to understand what our stories say about us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I was thinking about Arthur's reference to uh, Life of Pi. Life of Pi, yeah. Right, and so, you know... Yeah, of course. Pi creates this story, which is a narrative shape through which he can sort of walk through... The trauma. The trauma. The, 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 the tiger in the boat is yeah. his trauma. Uh, and, and how to, again, set that free and uh, set himself free from that kind of oppression. It seems to me that that's that narrative shape that these traditions provide. And in the case of the number 23, so to, to sort of round that out, the 23 version of Life of Pi, because Life of Pi is pretty obvious, right? Yeah. You know, in Life of Pi, mm -hmm. you know, we get we find out at the end, none of it happened, and yet it's still real and it's still true. Yeah. Right, which is a great spiritual point, I yeah. think, that we could all take. But at the end oh, of the number... totally. The end of the number 23, again... Even though Jim Carrey's character wrote the story himself, it is by his choice to immerse himself in the story that his own application, again, the own application is really, really direct. So it's really on the nose here. You know, this story is me. And yeah. it, because it literally, quite literally, is him. Um, uh, by doing that, he's able to do that. But I think what, what, again, what great religious traditions do is they provide us an opportunity, not so much, you know, to just think about, okay, is this story, you know, did it happen or didn't happen, which is about the worst question you can ask, yeah. you know, about, say, the, the story of Adam and Eve and the snake in the garden. The, 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 the story really is about, did you at times know what you were supposed to do and not care and just do it anyway? Yeah. That's a story that happens. And that's much more interesting than thinking about whether or not it's a story that happened. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's the fun thing, and it's kind of off topic, but I, you know, I think a lot about biopics and what makes a good biopic. And, and it's not so much is it historically accurate, it's does it create a lens through which we can see ourselves and speak to a human condition through the events and traumas of the 
people they're portraying or the events they're portraying. And Arthur, I, you, you know what you're. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Oh, I, I was just going to say what you're absolutely getting at right now um, is the difference between something like uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and something like Rocket Man, or he won't get far on foot. Right? Um, are are these biopics um, compromises? Are they family friendly, quote unquote, entertainment that make people feel safe and nostalgic, or are they honest portrayals of uh, tr- troubled? wonderful people um and that that help us explore our, our own lives and our own traumas right yeah. what where are we finding value in in the stories we're telling each other yeah. are we just trying to make each other feel better or are we trying to help each other learn about ourselves absolutely well and i think that sort of draws us to the uh sort of the dark edge of the number 23 because again that story shape does eventually provide an opportunity of a crisis of belief in which um, someone goes from wandering in the wilderness into something more like um, healing, even though it's prison. Prison's kind of the promised land uh, yeah. in this particular metaphor yeah, that I'm exactly. using. It's a bit of salvation. Yeah. 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 But, totally, totally. But the other side of it is is that he got obsessed with the minutia. The, the, the 23 well, think... itself, that, that language virus, the way in which you become obsessed with the minutiae and the details and uh, do those – I mean this happens with people with stories. This is where fundamentalism comes into play where someone totally. is, is so obsessed with that. And then they're reading those things into their own life. Again, I think reading a story and reading my own life into the story of Pi, right, which is a fictional character – about a fictional story that he's telling about himself, about a fictional tiger called Richard Parker. Yeah. Like, reading myself into that is, I think, useful and helpful. But one can read oneself too much into it, in which one is looking for all of those confirmations and all of those details yep. and all of the time in a way that it becomes a, a form of mania and uh, can actually inhibit one's uh, spiritual development and growth. And we do see that in fundamentalism. And so uh, it, there's a way in which this... Uh, the, the the story shape, again, going back to Arthur's syllabus, both advocates a kind of narrative-style spirituality and also uh, mitigates against a uh, fundamentalist kind of uh, religious obsession and mania that can be detrimental to oneself and others. Dustin, you, you made a comment back there uh, about um, you know the kind of the, the obsession thing, right, and getting hung up on the minutiae. And I think that's a really great segue point to kind of start talking about, again, the dark side of this. Uh, because I, I do like the, the representation of penance, right, uh, as uh, important. Uh, suffering as liberatory, even though, then, you know, careful when you start putting words like that together. Uh, so let's more say uh, that penance is next to godliness, we'll say instead. Um, because I, it, it is important that, um, you know, it's unfortunate to me that Joel Schumacher's, like, one of his last huge releases wasn't just an absolute grand slam of a movie. But I do think that there's value in, like, the themes of the number 23. It's one of the things that works so well about it is it doesn't let Jim Carrey off the hook. He does have to uh, atone for the thing that he did, even though he's a different person. Um, and, and I think that there's there's extreme value in that, in, in, in what this film is, what, what it has to sell, if, if, if you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's, it's making a living amends is what it's doing. You know, you can't ever bring totally. back, you know, Laura Tollins, but you can, again, set free the guy that was wrongfully accused and convicted. Um, that can't fully be amended, but you can uh, serve the time that you are assigned and also live healthy, live happy, live yeah. free. Well, 
Well, and that's why I made the comment about, you know, fragile white boy problems or whatever it was I said earlier, right? Because getting hung up in the minutia is such a, uh, uh, well, a factor of, I was going to, you know, try to generationalize it, but, you know, whether it's uh, Gen Xers or millennials or baby boomers, that's a real male tendency is to, is to hyperfixate on minutia. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, think about the gender socialization as a, as a frame for thinking about, you know, our, our commonalities between all of our behaviors. Uh, and that's how you end up with the incels, man. Getting too hung up on terms that other people define for you is how you start thinking uh, about being, I don't know, blackpilled or whatever, you know, form of nihilism uh, these dipshits are consuming that makes them want to shoot a whole bunch of goddamn people and then themselves. Like, that that's where minutia gets you. It, it is these acts of violence, these lashing out at other, lashing out at other people because you haven't processed your own pain. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's that's where that sort of hyperfixation will in, in, end up, uh, and that's why I reference the film in my syllabus. She dies tomorrow, because yeah, we we could all die tomorrow. All three, Arthur, Dustin, and I could all all three die tomorrow. But getting hyperfixated on that idea will surely put you in a grave much faster than if you just try to lay back and let just breathe and let it happen you're dying every minute of every day folks that's totally okay in fact it's kind of groovy right absolutely um i want to shift gears just a little bit though in this totally in in terms of fixation and uh, confirmation bias because that is sort of one of the big plot devices is this number 23 obsession phenomenon cult Mm. or whatever Mm. and uh you know one could as easily find the same sort of numerologies at work um at to look for anything i saw somebody i saw a meme on facebook sean connery just passed away and someone did the date of his death and did a math problem in which it added up to zero zero seven which is you know cute but you can always sort of if you're looking for it you can find it right yeah which is why we always get those 88 reason the world's going to end in 1988 or whatever books. You know, you find patterns and whatever. Because it's what you want. Yeah. And I think you see that sort of numerology throughout all religious practice, right? Number of seven is the number of perfection. uh, 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 Dustin, does that carry over to, uh, you know, the, the original trilogy, as it were? Um, or is that Stole? just a New Testament type thing? I mean, it's not really okay. No. What I want to say I was is mixing my metaphors. There's Sorry. a there's a symbolism with numbers, and so if you see something that happens seven times, you ought to ask questions about it. Like that's a significant thing uh, in terms of uh, something well, recorded in a sacred text. But of uh, course, there, in the seventy seven times seven, these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Like well, should I forgive my brother seven times? No, seven times seventy, which doesn't mean four hundred ninety times you get to forgive somebody. It's just that you have to keep forgiving them. Yeah. You know, all the time yep. is the idea of, of the principle in the Gospels there. Uh, there are people who sometimes there's a numerical values that can be assigned to uh, the Hebrew alphabet. And so at times, some of the authors have um, not not subtly. And again, they're always flagged when these things occur. They, they, they use some of those um, multiple multiplication kind of things to sort of uh, reinforce their points. But you can, again, become obsessive minutia driven mm-hmm. and start counting every eighth letter of a, a given book of the Bible and, you know, make a message out of that. And that, I don't I don't buy that. And it's easy to do in a language yeah, like Hebrew with lax vowels. Yeah. Definitely don't do that, listener. You have no idea what you will get if you start doing that to yourself. Good Lord. Oh, fuck. Yeah, you don't want to play with that dynamite. And what you end um, up finding is what you want. And that is, exactly. I think, the problem of uh, – well, I mean the modern-day conspiracy theory is really what I want to draw us totally, towards. The totally. QAnon thing is that in, in some ways this movie is diagnostic of that. Yeah. Um, that kind of obsessive kind of looking. 
um, in which uh, confirmation bias, personal bias, colors the facts. And again, the facts will be there. The numbers will be there. You can do the math of the day that Sean Connery died in a certain way and add up to 007. But that doesn't mean it was the fated day for Sean Connery to die. It's just what happened to have happened. Right. Yeah. And uh, in the same kind of way, yes, you can put together, well, wait a minute, this person was on a plane at this time when this certain event took place. Why do they have them on the plane? Well, if you have a reason for them to be on the plane already, then it's completely the reason, as opposed to that's when the flight took off. Oh, it was delayed. They delayed to get them in the air at the right, you know, and I'm I'm sort of constructing a conspiracy theory in my head for some event to take place while Air Force One is flying. And oh, don't worry. Dustin and I are always uh, uh, you can count on, and probably Arthur too. Although I, I should, I haven't checked that much. Uh, we're we're all mostly creating conspiracy theories in our heads at all times at this point. I think. I mean, yeah, it's a world but, you in know, which we, we live. We don't buy into all the ones that we create. It's just fun to think about sometimes. Yeah. Now, yeah, and as a thought exercise, it is entertaining and it is maybe totally. interesting, but it does create a, a, a culture of mania. And I do think we are witnessing more and more of that in which we are having questions of facts and facticity and uh, using those things to ground an argument. And the major logical fallacy that's at work here is that, yes, you can produce the numbers to get you to a sum of 23, but that doesn't mean that those numbers of themselves were significant. It was just you you had it in your mind to find it in certain ways. I mean, yeah. something added up to 5, and well, that's 2 plus 3. Well, no, that's, 5 does not equal 23, even though 2 plus 1 and 4 also equals 5. Yeah. And uh, so 41, is 41 the number of the code? No, but if you subtract. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. I, I uh, thought it was 42. That's something else. but but that is where these dark corners of the internet are really working hard you know Uh, and again this is not necessarily just a right-wing kind of thing although it seems that the right is currently a bit more infected with this particular pontypool language virus um well dustin do you mind if i might conjecture why it might potentially be the right wing a little bit do you mind if i jump in here go right ahead well it's because that uh for lots of reasons and frankly, mostly classist reasons by a bunch of uh, GD neolibs who can't shut the fuck up about what college they went to. And they best stop flapping their gums unless they want to get their ears boxed. It makes people who are conservative feel stupid. Uh, and so it, it perpetuates a, a refusal to accept an, an, an appeal to expertise, which of course is its own sort of logical fallacy, right? But mm-hmm. if somebody tells you they're an expert on an issue – you should believe them for at least a moment, and then if you still think what they say sounds like bullshit, then you can go do some research. But, you know, cite your sources and check the cited sources, etc. Like, just because you didn't go to a school um, after you finished high school doesn't mean you can't teach yourself how to do research. Lots of people have done it. Um, you guys ever hear the story of the smartest man in the world who was uh, just a bouncer? Uh, it's, and I'm not talking about Roadhouse, although – Hell yeah, no <laughs> talk about that. This is a real story. There's a bouncer and like a, a limo driver who was basically an astrophysicist. The man was uh, fucking smarter than Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, or, you know, at least could have been his peer. Um, and, you know, never had any really formal education, just the shit he liked to teach himself. Um, so I think that sort of refusal to be humble and that hyper fixation on the minutiae, as we've talked about, it does make people who are politically conservative, regardless if they're you know libertarians or registered Republicans or whatever, uh, it does make them feel inferior in a way that can sometimes make people more susceptible 
uh, to conspiratorial thought. I can admit myself, I'm not too proud to admit it. Um, speaking again of getting hung up on minutia and letting other people define your terms, uh, I caught a little bit of the the the, the Trump derangement syndrome or, or whatever it is that uh, those liberal snow or those conservative snowflakes like to call it. I can't ever decide who I'm mad at. That's the problem. Um, but you know, I got a little bit too mad at um, old uh, 45 a couple of times, and it made me a little bit too ranty and ravey in all aspects of my life. And you know what? That serves nobody but uh, the dark one, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, you just got to fucking chill out and don't worry about the minutia. I, I, and I just want to do circle back since we've kind of – I feel like we're kind of coming to an end here and just say the reason I brought up like the positive aspects of minutia, right, when I reference numerology within uh, established uh, religious practices is I think there is value in minutia, right? This is why we have ritual. Uh, this is why we have, uh, this is why we, we obsess uh, about the sim sim symbolisms uh, within uh, the book of Revelation. But the problem is you can't focus on the minutia. You just have to think about the metaphor because if you focus on the minutia, you get left behind. And instead of seeing um, uh, a Scotsman in a bad toupee holding a Bible upside down and not understanding that that's a variation of an antichrist. Right. I yeah. mean, come on. How much louder does God need to say it for you, folks? Yeah, totally, totally fair. And uh, yeah, and so I, Manusha, I, I, but but minutia is helpful, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Is the short version. Well, I mean, that's how you turn the facets of the gem, right? Now, that's sort of an ancient rabbinic tradition where you look at something, but, but without looking at just one facet always. And again, the obsession. You keep turning the gem, and you begin to find that that phrase, whatever phrase it's it is. It's a sailboat painting from Mallrats. Yeah. And so you just keep looking at it, and you see more and more things. And that's a good thing, as opposed to seeing the one thing everywhere, Yeah, which is uh, the real problem. Uh, I want to move one more gear um, into a slightly different gear. Uh, we, we must address Joel Schumacher as filmmaker here. Um, this movie is very horny. And, uh, Ooh, yeah. And, uh, but it is very heteronormative in its uh, sexuality. And, uh, of course, Joel Schumacher is um, one of the earlier, um, not earliest, but one of the earlier uh, major Hollywood filmmakers who was out of the closet and uh, whose filmmaking was informed at times uh, by his sexuality. And I, I, was, I was thinking a lot about this movie. And, uh, of course, there's a strong sort of S&M, fetishism, BDSM uh, kind of thing going on uh, with the film. And I, I was trying to figure out, well, why would, again, sort of a, a gay man making a film, you know, with these characters be interested in, you know, framing the sexuality with this sort of threat of peril and, uh, you know, again, sort of uh, strong sort of uh, kink kind of uh, uh, danger-oriented kind of fetishism. And I just want to float a theory, a possibility. Um, okay. And, 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 and that is um, in part about what, Early out of the closet um, members of society before you know we're in, we're in an age of normalization now, but there was always an element of danger in being at all known in any sort of way, and maybe part of the reason why those who are known or would allow themselves to be known is that they were kind of into the danger just a little bit. 
And well, Dustin, that... I think. Interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. But I, I... I, dude, I, I've got. I'm going to yes and your theory unless you've got more to say. Well, I mean, Sorry. that's all I was going to suggest is that you know maybe that part of what we why we see some so much of this without filmmakers, you know, and again, Clive Barker is another good example here, yeah. um, of of doing that kind of thing is not that because uh, gay men are more into bondage and kink and sort of you know a little danger, you know, sex and death, death and sex, you know, the line from the movie, you know, they're more into that that community is than other people. Um, of other sexual orientations, but rather that those who were publicly, you know, or, or who felt the ability to be public about it, there might be something going on there in which danger is is part of what turns their cranks. Interesting. It, well, and exactly, and I want to decouple, uh, that's why I wanted to yes and you, Dustin, but I do want to decouple sex and gender from it a little bit because I think uh, kink is really the larger uh, consideration here, right? Because mm-hmm. so much of kink and fetish uh you know whatever your your deal is uh, and this is you know we're, we're we've entered the sex positive portion of the show um it, it, it is super important to remember that the things that happen to people when they are young that they often uh, are fuzzy memories at best but uh, you know wh- whatever starting from the uh, time you have memories all of these things do end up informing your sexuality uh, and that can mean a lot for people's boundaries, and that can mean a lot for people compromising their boundaries because they're horny. Uh, and that is where I think, yeah, we do get something like uh, the number 23 or any other number of uh, detective or mystery stories where we really deal with the interlap and overplay uh, between sex and violence. And again, I think there's a much more interesting conversation to be had uh, on uh, next week's episode about this kind of stuff, so I'll keep this brief. But uh, I think your your theory is absolutely right, Dustin. Uh, is, is that uh, the, so much of the sexuality of the number twenty three? I think, and and maybe Lost Boys and some some of Joel Schumacher's other you know kind of uh, uh, subtly or sometimes explicitly queer work is is the ways in which it does kind of interrogate um, how how the bad things that have happened to us do inform what turns us on sometimes mm-hmm. um, for you know w- whatever that means. Uh, and you know, I think that's a very, very valuable thing to explore in a Hollywood film. Well, I, I think even on a base level, this is a film about repression and trying to come to grips with who you really are. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, for a a closeted, you know, homosexual or, or anybody who has struggled with their identity in that way, you know, I feel like there's probably a bit of catharsis here and... You know, I don't. I don't know if that's it, but it does feel like that is a kind of motif of the film is coming to grips with who you really are and, and what you're really here for. And I think that's part of thematically. I think could tie into his his life as well. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Damn. Well, I wanted to talk more about cop shit, but I think we got that mostly with theology. I don't really have anything else I want to say about this dog turd. You guys want to go ahead and talk, start talking about plugs in next week? Uh, well, I want to do one last thing uh, because you okay. did mention the cop thing, and you called this movie Copaganda at one point. And, yeah, uh, I kind of want to walk that back a little bit. Okay, because uh, I was like, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, yeah if, okay, I do want to walk that back a little bit. Um, I, I only mean to say that after the year we've had and, and the president we ended up with, uh, who still uh, was, um, well, a mealy mouth little fucking baby, if you want to ask me, about the way he talked about law enforcement. And, uh, you know, I know Joe Biden's a sundowning old man, so I don't too hold too much against him. Uh, this is mostly directed at the Democratic Party at large. Um, but, yeah, th- this film does get it right a little bit. It values the work uh, that um, p- 
and I'm not just going to say law enforcement folks, um, because frankly, we fixate and fetishize on them too much. Their job's not that goddamn dangerous. Loggers, truckers, and fishermen all get killed more than cops. And if a cop's mad about it, leave the badge and the gum at home. I'll send you my address. You can come fight me in my front yard about it. Um, it it's not that dangerous of a job, statistically speaking. And, and we really fetishize the death element of police work when it should be much more about social work. And I think this film kind of understands that a little bit in the fact that the truest, most self-actualized version of Jim Carrey in this film is a dog catcher. He's just a man of the people out protecting the community from wild animals, which are hard to deal with. That's all that he's doing. And if a cop is hearing what I just said and relating to it too much, you need to fucking retire because you're missing the point of your job, buddy. You're not dealing with wild animals, you fascist. You're dealing with human beings. Um... <clears throat> Excuse me, I'll change my tone a little bit. I got a little hot under the collar, and I'm trying to do NPR voice for Dustin's birthday still. Um, <laughs> Didn't even make it a week. It, nope, not even a week. No, but sometimes some things need to be said as succinctly and as directly as possible, I feel like. Um, this film does get it right, though, that the law enforcement work is emotionally traumatic in a way that is... And that's why I brought up Disco Elysium um, in, my, in my analysis, uh, because... It deals with the way that that sort of public work, um, regardless of what kind it is, but because I, I, I hate to tell you, public, uh, you know, my day job obviously is is working in public service. I don't talk about that a lot, um, but fellow public workers, we all got a target on our back. Uh, our our places of business get blown up and shot shot up sometimes. Uh, it's just a thing that happens because the government sucks, and sometimes people want to take it out on us, and uh, I can't really fault them for that. So, you know, stay, remember to stay safe and stay vigilant out there, public workers. Take care of yourself. Take care of your brains. It's hard work that we do, and it's easy to get burnt out. And I think this film understands that. Dustin once said something to me, and, uh, and I, I will tread lightly so I make sure Arthur doesn't have to edit anything out here. But, or, you know, Dustin has ministered uh, to people who have uh, worked in law enforcement and have worked in life-or-death jobs. And uh, he's told me that most of those people really have a hard time opening up to him and if they ever do they basically never talk to him again after that and i, I would encourage uh, other uh, uh, people with emotionally traumatic jobs uh you know to know that i can relate and dustin can relate and arthur can relate we have all gone through hard things and you know reach out if you need to talk to somebody you don't have to go to therapy i know that that's not everybody's bag but uh, we're all holding on to something we don't need to be holding on to regardless of what the job is and uh, I think number 23 gets that. And that's why you're right, Dustin. I didn't want to walk back the copy candy thing because I think it understands the complexities uh, of that world in a, in a fairly um, articulate way. It's one of the few things that this film is emotionally articulate about because it certainly isn't about mental health, which I don't think we have time to get into today. Uh, no, I don't think we do either. But I do think you're right, and uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I think we, we can just safely just uh, set aside and go, this film has a pretty poor understanding of mental health. But that being said, as far as illness goes, but... You know, it does its other things the way it does them. So let's go ahead and render a verdict, though, shall we? Shelf or trash uh, with the number 23. Dalton, you've already sort of tipped your hand, so go ahead. Yeah, it's bad. Flush it down the toilet. I don't like it. All right. Arthur, what do you say? Um, I will lightly put it in the trash. Uh, if it were on TV, you know, I wouldn't be uh, opposed to leaving it on the channel. Uh, but this isn't one to actively seek out. I'm going to say shelf. I think it's fun. And uh, and it's been on my shelf for a long time. It was given to me by a yeah. friend who's now passed on. And uh, so I think about that guy every time I watch it. Aww. And uh, so, yeah, that is uh, 
part of my um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, connection connection to this film. Yes. Yeah, fair enough. That wasn't the word, but that works better. All right. So, all right. Well, there you go, dear listener. Um, Dalton, make uh, some social media plugs. Yeah, that's the thing that I do at this point in the show. Um, look, if you want to come hang out uh, with the Good Trash family, uh, you can go to at the Praise Down on Twitter. Their pinned tweet is a link to the Praise Down Discord server. Um, if you don't know much about Discord, my, it's going to be take too long to explain on the show. My DMs on Twitter are still open. Um, I'm at doll underscore stew. You can hit me up. I'll explain Discord to you. Uh, but if you want to join the Praise Down Discord server, uh, lots of your favorite good trash friends and family are there. Also, Oklahoma City rock and roll legends. I'm not going to say rock and roll. That's too stupid a way to say what they do. Uh, noise rock legends. Um, uh, Gr- Gr- Griffin uh, and um, uh, oh my god I forgot his lead singer's name anyway members from Chat Pile all your favorite friends are there over at uh, the Praise Down Discord server come hang out with us uh, we watched uh, some of us watched Highlander um, in the movie room this weekend it was a wonderful time um, I, I can't more strongly recommend you come join that community it's a great place to be uh, when you're needing to unwind a little bit hey Dalton friends. yes hey, how much did they pay for that spot for what spot? The one you just gave them. The praise down? Yeah. Well, the way I see it, they've been part of the network for a while, and I know at least Jarvix gives to the Patreon Patreon because of them. And I can't remember the last time we bought them a gift, so let's go ahead and consider that one. Uh, that one's courtesy. That plug for the praise down was brought to you by Jarvix, one of our very fine Patreon uh, sponsors. And if you, too, want to be a Patreon sponsor, you can go to GTM. I'm sorry, patreon.com forward slash GTM, uh, and throw some shekels in the bucket, and you can listen to Dustin and Arthur and I play a little nerd poker as we roll the bones, uh, and we go through Good Trash Archdiocese. We're currently in the middle of um, our season one finale. It's been quite a showstopper. I'm very excited for people to hear it. Um, I'm having a great time. Are you guys having a great time with the mystery we're doing right now? Yeah. Uh, who, me? Yeah. Oh, either one of you. <laughs> like my enthusiasm. Yeah, I'm having a ball. It's great. It's a great time. We, Dalton we keeps trying it. to predict where we are in the ser- season on this show, and yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, well, I only say that because my character is about to change character classes, um, so it feels like um, uh, Arthur's right. I do keep trying to do that, and you know why I do that, Arthur? I learned it from watching you. You were always trying to predict what season of Good Trash genre cast we were in uh, early in the show's run. So I learned it from watching you, Dad. That's fair. Um, that feels like enough plugs for this week. Yeah. Um, oh, at Good underscore Trash, if you want to follow uh, the Good Trash Media Network on Twitter. Um, Arthur mostly runs that these days, so you know you don't have to worry about anything uh, making you too angry for me or Dustin. Uh, it's mostly good movie news retweets and funny polls and uh, chill stuff like that. Um, if you've got long-form feedback, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, watch movies with other people. Um, as much as I hated the number 23, I watched it with Dr. Mrs. My Wife, and uh, we laughed our asses off the whole time. It was fun to watch. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, we have another movie for next week. Uh, and since it is the uh, 40 for Dustin, whatever we're calling this thing, I don't even know what we're doing. Pops is old. Yeah. Um, series, um, you know, One Foot in the Grave. Um, Papa's <laughs> Lounge sounds too sexual. Um, but I kind I like Papa's Lounge, but it sounds way too horny. We need to think of something a little bit more academic. Dustin's nearly dead. Something like that. Um, but whatever. No, I like that better. Death becomes him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it, um, I, I was thinking about what to pick for my good trash pick. Um, 
trying to select movie that was definitely in the good trash vein of the initial sort of uh, founding of this show. And then we had the passing of Sir Sean Connery, and so I decided to go with Highlander. Although he doesn't star in that particular film, um, I think it's an interesting movie, and it's definitely a good trash fodder. And so next week, um, we'll be looking at Highlander uh, with the great Christopher Lambert, and uh, good times will be had by all. So there you go. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.